you're listening to Exactly with me, Florence Given. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week and for all of your incredible feedback and comments. It honestly really does give me such joy to hear from you. I love that people are having conversations about exactly online. I love hearing about what you're learning from my guests. I love hearing the bits that you love. Just just keep sending it my way. I absolutely love it. Throughout this podcast, I'm diving into some really big and important subjects. So far, we've covered sex and still to come, our social media, relationships and body image. But today, we're exploring the subject of feminism. I literally cannot wait for you to hear this episode with my incredibly intelligent and wise guest, Sean Fay. At the end of the episode, we'll be answering your questions on feminism and trans liberation that you've sent in via my Instagram stories, which is such a vital conversation to be having right now. In the fourth episode of this mini-series on feminism, remember that I want to hear from you. My guest and I will be answering your calls, your texts, and your voice notes. So any questions or dilemmas that you have to do with feminism, just drop me a line on my podcast WhatsApp. The number is plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. One of the most divisive and pressing issues within feminism at the moment is the divide on trans issues. It's a really sad thing to say, but it feels really urgent to address it and educate ourselves more deeply on the topic. I have an enormous audience and I feel a personal responsibility to inform my audience, the people who listen to me and the people who are gonna be listening to this podcast, to listen to the voices of the people who are also at the forefront of the trans liberation movement. There is so much misinformation and dehumanization of trans people in the media, causing hysteria about a marginalized group, which doesn't even comprise of 1% of the UK's population. There's a real generational divide here between old school feminism and my peers who are the younger generation, bringing on the much needed new wave of trans inclusive feminism. And of course, I know that that's a massive generalization. Neither side, old school or new wave is a homogenous block. I'm sure there's plenty of people my age who still debate trans women's place in feminism and older women who are more vocal about their liberation. But this is the pattern that I've seen on the whole. In this episode on feminism, I want to explore why this divide exists and where it comes from with my incredible guest, Sean Fay. I'm absolutely in awe of Sean and her intelligence, her courage and her authority on this subject. She's also extremely glamorous and hilarious. I love following her on Instagram. Sean is a writer, editor, journalist and presenter known for her commentary on LGBTQ+, women's and mental health issues. She hosts the podcast Call Me Mother and is the author of the book The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice. I can't recommend it enough. If you read one book on trans rights, make it this one. Trans women are a part of feminism and they're definitely a part of my feminism. In this episode, I want to learn a little more from Sean about how we can be more inclusive of trans women in our everyday lives and politics. Okay, Sean, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Before we get into it, I want to go through my Floss's High Five questions. Um, Just say the first thing that comes to your mind, I ask all of my guests. Okay. They're completely random, have (laughs) nothing to do with anything, okay? So question one, 
What's one thing that sets your soul on fire? Sequins. Oh, amazing. Okay, great. If you could wear one outfit for the rest of your life, a look that would define you forever, what would that outfit be? Sequins? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, a thigh-high boot and a sequin dress. Oh, God, amazing. Okay, cool. Uh, What's something that people frequently misunderstand or get wrong about you? Uh, People tend to think I'm a much more serious person than I am. Okay, yeah. I get that a lot as well. Okay, finish this sentence. I'm still a work in progress when it comes to... Everything. Okay. (laughs) Any specifics? Uh, I'm still a work in progress when it comes to cooking, which I can't do. I still can't prepare myself a full meal. Okay, so like lots of Uber Eats delivery. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay, when was the last time you majorly cringed at yourself? (laughs) Oh my God. I get tagged a lot on Instagram on like work I made. Like I did a monologue for uh, the Tate Britain in like 2017 about my early transition and someone tagged me in it and I watched a little bit of it and I had to switch it off. It was so embarrassing because it was so earnest at the time. But Mm. obviously it's like, it's like seeing photos of yourself as a teenager. Yeah. And I think transition makes you like have a teenage experience a second time. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's so amazing. Um, Obviously like horrific as well, but (laughs) I don't think of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Transitioning publicly is a pill. <laughs> wow. So the first question I want to ask you is what led you to writing the book? So I had been working as a journalist, like freelance, trying to do like stuff for the left-wing liberal media and some of the newer media, like fashion magazines and stuff like that for a long time. And I never really had the space or the editors with a clue to like mm. really write the stuff about trans issues I wanted to. And I really felt the conversation publicly was getting really derailed about the same sort of talking points that had nothing to do with what me or my friends cared about. Mm. All the like real issues affecting like some of my friends really quite badly. And so, yeah, I just felt the conversation become derailed. Trans people were increasingly nowhere to be seen in like mainstream media at least. Um, whereas they had been like five years ago, but it's just become so toxic that I think a lot of people don't want to do it. Mm. Um, and so I felt like it was necessary to like have a reset um, somehow. And I'd seen how other people had done that with books. So like... Yeah. Renietta Lodge with why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, mm-hmm. like had managed to like have the conversation that she wanted to yeah. about race mm. without having to like go on Good Morning Britain or whatever. You speak in the book about how this is like a uniquely British thing, the way that the media targets trans people, not unique to British people, but that the British media has a very strange way of doing it and turning trans people who are under 1% of the population into something to be feared. Yeah. And where do you think the fear comes from? One is just like, you know, very basic people afraid of difference and things they don't understand or know. And unfortunately, because we're such a small segment of the population, we're really susceptible to harmful myths, prejudicial tropes. Mm. Um, And those are really embedded in our culture. We've had like, you know, like decades of media mockery until quite recently. We've had a lot of cultural misrepresentation psycho silence of the lambs like in cinema like this idea that trans people particularly trans women are kind of creepy or Mm. predatory um so those are kind of there embedded and it's very easy to tap into those so i think the fear comes sometimes from fear of difference it can be tapped into i think for some cisgender women it can come from a genuine anxieties they have around male violence and um the fact that like misogynist violence domestic violence etc isn't something as a society we've really tackled and we've taken away all the services because of austerity policies there isn't the funding for proper services to really help women and i think it's easy for the media especially the right-wing media instead of blaming the government or whoever's defunded these things 
to kind of blame a minority group. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like this anxiety that trans men are like damaged women who are trying to leave womanhood and trans women are kind of like interlopers. So I think I think those are the like two huge sources of fears. And mm. also there's the kind of fear that we might we might be trying to convert and recruit um young people, which is really similar to like how anti-gay panics happened in like the 80s and 90s as well. Like this idea that like we might be a small population now, but mm. um we're recruiting more and more young people, which obviously more people are coming out younger because there's more of us like visible in society. Like yes. that just happens. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like if you see more trans people around, more people question their own gender in the same way. Yes, that, like, yeah. Like you know, like all the studies shows that like more people identify as queer, more people see themselves as sexually mm-hmm. fluid or bi or whatever. Um, which is funny because yeah, in the eighties, I think people were like, oh, you know, they're going to turn everyone gay. And actually, a lot <laughs> of like gay companies have to be like, no, no, we're not. You can't make someone gay. But I do actually think probably more people are queer now because. Yeah. Yeah, if it's just more acceptable and you have like more of a free space to think about these things, it probably means that you probably sure. might tap into things that people never did. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's about awakening that in you, what is already there. Like you can't make someone gay. And yeah. again, that's just the, the homophobic stuff that comes with that as well. And it's like, it's all about the children and protecting the children when actually it could completely liberate children from heteronormativity and all of this kind of stuff and all the ideas that we have about gender. And yeah, another question I really wanted to ask you is how do we maintain curiosity as cisgender people without being offensive because I feel as a queer woman when straight people ask me questions about queerness it's always about sex and about my sex life and how do queer girls have sex and how do and it's all of the it's always quite intrusive and I feel that that's what I've seen with trans women as well all the questions refer back to toilets genitals bathrooms and all of this kind of stuff could you give some tips for anyone listening and myself included how do we have conversations and be curious and open to understanding without being fucking offensive and rude (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I mean like a lot of it's context isn't it like obviously if I'm on a panel or doing a podcast or like discussing my book you know, I'm kind of there to discuss some of this stuff. So I do feel like it's good to be as open as possible because it's sure. kind of like the role I've given myself. Yeah, okay. But like I can be in like a complete other context, like, you know, Christmas party, whatever. And I just don't want to talk about it. Yep. And I'm quite like, I'm quite offended that someone mm. wants to sort of like <laughs> yeah. um, really get into it with yes, me. Because it's okay. like, this is my, don't you respect, this is my downtime. Mm. Which obviously like I understand why particularly in my case people might do that I'm unusual because I've set myself up to talk about these issues yeah but the majority like the trans person you meet like socially Mm. hasn't volunteered themselves for that role at all yeah and I think the curiosity thing is is that unfortunately yeah people see any trans person in front of them and expect them to be a yeah receptacle for all their curiosity and also there's a difference right I think I'm all about like political like alliances and for a lot of that stuff if it's about like wanting to be like in solidarity with trans people and actually fight for trans people's rights alongside your own you don't actually need to know loads of personal stuff about us mm. to do that like it's quite separate like so yeah it's it's calmed down a lot now younger people kind of know like asking loads about surgery or whatever is a bit like crass yeah but like yeah people people still will the other thing as well I mean, as a, as a trans woman is sometimes you can tell where people are kind of othering you mm. without even realizing like, you're so beautiful. It's Do the overcompensation. Me. It's the overcompensation, it's like, right? Yeah, this, you wouldn't be saying this to me if I was a cisgender woman. It kind of is like making my femininity more spectacular at, sure. again, like a kitchen table at a friend's party. Do you okay. know what I mean? Yes. You know, it's that kind of subtle othering that's mm-hmm. like you're tre- you are treating someone as like different without For sure. really meaning to. Yeah. And I, and I understand, especially for amongst women, I think it comes from a good place because 
because I think like there's this idea of like welcoming, especially like trans women who are early mm-hmm. on. But like I shot a campaign a few years ago and um, we were staying in the same hotel, me and this other girl who was in the campaign and we were getting like a taxi to the studio in the morning. She asked what I did for other work and I was like, I'm working with an LGBT charity. And she was like, are you a lesbian? And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like sadly not. I, uh, I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a trans woman. And she was like, oh, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize. And she was like, well, you look great. Mm. And obviously like it was nervousness, but you know, like the subtle like implication there is that she wasn't expecting me to look great. That instant thing is that like what, I'm here to do as a trans woman is that like I've succeeded if she thinks yes. I look good. Uh-huh. Which, you know, I, I I think is about a wider beauty standards thing for women. But like you get that reminder the whole time. It's like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, well, I'm fulfilling the, the function of being palatable to sure. you because you think I look appropriately feminine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to the the safety or rather unsafety that trans women experience is that like if you, I know the conversations about passing and stuff like this, it speaks to the fact that she's like, oh, well, you look good. It's like, you look like not trans is like what she's saying. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Was that like, you know, women don't know you pretty. Is that like with trans women, it's the same thing, but it's like intensified really is that, you know, I I feel weird about saying this. It's hard to not feel like you're sort of like weirdly implying that you're pretty in a kind of like, so you agree. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But like, if you look at like, who gets a media platform amongst you including trans men trans masculine people Mm. is yeah it tends to be the people that kind of are like satisfying the most Mm. like the safest form of like whatever gender expression you know like trans women are Mm -hmm. all like long hair and obviously not all trans women are like that like yes like but like all the trans women who get like a media platform are like long hair feminine Mm -hmm. you know tend to be like oh I date men you know all these things that put people at ease rather than being like queer gender non-conforming trans women and similarly with trans masculine it's kind of like Mm. white thin androgynous you know all that stuff it's like it puts people at kind of ease well yeah well, you, you compared it to women that are you pretty well there is <laughs> there is the um the quote around social media that's like trans women that are you hyper femininity yeah. i feel like that's what you're saying so yeah it's yeah the... basically yeah Not, like, there was no way i would come here without makeup and the reason being i think is yeah so you're you're punished very yeah. severely for it okay so can we break it down a little bit about what radical feminism is and why they're so often associated with transphobia and being a tough. Radical feminism in itself isn't necessarily transphobic. Radical no. what radical feminist means is is from the second wave of feminism in the 70s, um, really, is that there was like very different, many different schools of feminist thought. So like a classic example would have been like socialist feminists who said that like the the, the sort of central oppression of women was through the class system and that like capitalism meant that like you know like women did all the unpaid labor in the home and then like working class men went out to do all the kind Mm -hmm. of work be exploited for their labor and it required women to stay at home raise children be trapped and so socialist feminists had that lens etc and then radical feminists broke out in the 70s and split off from the socialist feminist movement and were like no the first and foremost like oppression that that pre-exists all oppressions is the oppression of men over women it's existed throughout all human history it's rooted in sexual violence. Yeah, it's the fundamental oppression on which pretty much all other oppressions are modelled. So a lot of like socialist feminists and black feminists, I think, already had some critiques of that idea that like this like hierarchy of men over women. It's just very very simplistic, I guess. Mm, okay. And they and and you know some of them were like lesbian separatists, so they like really believed like they had some of them had all female communes. They would take their female children, not their male children. You know, a lot of them did things like set up women's refuges. That's where the refuge movement comes from. Is because. Mm. 
um, they had things called consciousness raising groups where they would sit around and a lot of them hadn't realized, you know, that they, they were being like emotionally, physically sexually abused by their husbands or the, you know, by their fathers. Or, so, so there was quite a lot of like pain, I think. And obviously, it, yeah, it meshed into for some this real kind of, um, separatism yeah. from, from men and women and this idea that men are the oppressors, women are the victims always. And then the trouble is, is that like, trans women started to like appear in political circles in the 70s and they became quite quickly a fixation of this mm. like movement for some because obviously they saw them as like males men yeah. who were like infiltrating um taking up space dominating things mm. you see this a lot in the literature and so um particularly if they were trans women who were attracted to women so quite quickly this starts wow. to become like this like discourse in feminism so there was a book called the transsexual empire the making of the she-male by a radical feminist called janice raymond and she basically said that all transsexuals are rapists because they appropriate women's bodies they infiltrate womanhood um and they yeah and so so this quite toxic demonization starts in like feminist thought like towards the end you know towards the 70s and at this point it's a really minority group because feminism wasn't that popular it's not like it is now where like sort of saying you're a feminist is less controversial. So radical feminists were a minor- minority? Yeah, really minority. Okay. I mean, feminism full stop, like in yeah, the 70s. Okay. It wasn't like most women would have called themselves a mm-hmm. feminist. Whereas I think the term feminist for like millennial and Gen Z women has become a lot more Yeah, popular. it's in the lexicon, like it's there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think like this resurgence that we're living through now of like feminist thought, yeah, started with like a, a rise of like a new wave of feminism online. And suddenly, I don't know quite what it was, but it just like at the same time as trans people started to become more visible and this like feminist resurgence happened online is a lot of these like anti-trans feminist radical feminist discourses kind of started but like this this time round they're not just about like real radical political separatist lesbian feminists because mm-hmm. that's very few people it's become much more like of a weird strange motley crew of like kind of homophobes, some quite misogynist men, some people who just find trans people creepy. I mean, yeah. I think it's like worth saying that. It's the same as like the homophobe that just finds two men kissing a bit gross. Yeah. Is that there are some people that just find the idea of mm-hmm. a man in a dress, quote unquote, yeah. um, creepy. And yeah, there are some of those like older generation of feminists in there too. Um, and they've all kind of formed a bit of an unholy alliance. And I think what we're seeing now is like a huge radicalization movement online and on social media mm-hmm. where they're recruiting more and more people in. That makes a lot of sense about because yeah. I've always in my head the word radical feminist, it sounds like a good thing. Yeah. Radical fe- it sounds like, okay, this is someone who really, you know, dies for their beliefs. <laughs> and then you read into it, you're like, oh, actually, radical feminists are associated with turfs. And I didn't know anything about even what a radical feminist. It was just yeah. two words in my head to me. Um I mean there are there are some in fairness, there were some radical feminists who are trans inclusive. Like there have always been some. The, the trouble is with radical feminists is that they, you know, it's in general, even the ones that are trans inclusive, like they tend to they tend to be quite anti like sex worker. Like yeah, they because yeah, they're yeah. like also obsessed with porn mm. and with and with prostitution. You know, we we now tend to think of being a feminist as a good person means being yes. a good person. But like there are some schools of it that can be like, you know, pretty racist, pretty pretty misogynistic pretty Mm. like um moralistic and can involve cruelty just like any political ideology Mm. like it doesn't make you a good person you still have to think about 
you know, whether your your principles are making you actually be hurtful. Yeah, or to aligning people. with your actions and how you treat people as well. Yeah. And you speak about in the book how um transphobia is a class issue as well. Can you mm. talk more about that and how those are interlinked? One of the ways I was seeing trans issues being talked about on Instagram, on Twitter, especially yeah. by like people who would call themselves allies was this like identity thing about we've got to respect people's identities. You're either valid or you're not valid. You've got to validate people. Mm. Trans rights are human rights. Trans women are women. This stuff. And I was like, yeah, cool. But like, it leads some people who have more like left-wing politics to be like, I don't get what the like, where the politics is here because this all seems just about identity okay. and it seems a little bit like individualistic. And I, what I thought was missing was like, actually being trans like really severely affects your like working prospects. It affects how much you're likely to earn, the kind of work you do, the precarity in which you live your mm -hmm. life. Um, it has a really huge material impact on people. And and therefore like trans workers as a rule, like, I mean, the trouble is that I'm an exception, right? Like, cause I, I always say this cause I'm sure there are people willing to be like, well, you seem to be fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the, that's the bind, right? It's so, like yeah. the people like me and Monroe Bergdorf and like the people that you see doing public facing work do tend to be the privileged ones like mm. we get platforms and then we sort of become atypical of other trans people so, so I talk about this in the book the first time I ever met a, tra a trans person I was just a student right but the, the trans people working there were like full time and like really badly paid call center work where you're on zero hours contract and it was interesting because there were a lot of like uh, Somali Muslim women who were who wore the veil and trans women working together in these kind of call centers. And it kind of makes sense because it's like, well, these were customer service roles where you didn't have to face the public and you didn't have to experience harassment. You could wow. just speak. Um, mm. But they were really badly paid. You weren't yeah. treated very well. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of interested in that. Like, you know, like how even the fact that that's like two different groups of women that like mm. experience like a lot of harassment how the front that would facing shape. aspect was taken away and yeah. that's what made it a safer job yeah, yeah exactly um and yeah and that ties into the sex work thing right is that that's why most trans women i know for example have done sex work more have than haven't done some kind of sex work uh and and the reality of that is because probably in some cases, it can be like better working conditions than what you might be able to get outside of sex work, mm -hmm. which is like that. That's that's it. Like if you've got like all these medical expenses to pay to fund your transition, the NHS is really slow. You're going to be treated really badly and harassed by colleagues. It's quite easy to see why you would go on OnlyFans or yeah, because um, you you're in control. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even why you would do in-person sex work. Mm. I mean it just is like a fact of like financial yeah. need. Also the fact that like mm. compared to like the daily difficulty of like working with people that like might be like making fun of your identity. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you might like be constantly worried about being fired. You know, uh -huh. you, you could, it's not that hard to see why it, it becomes attractive um, even yeah. with the risks. And we've seen this happen with so many marginalized groups where it's so ironic that a group of people who take up such a small percentage of the population in the UK are being scapegoated, blamed for a lot of... We've literally seen this happen for our history, and yet trans people could not be more disenfranchised. Mm. And in in the UK and in the media, and even, even about like the work that you're talking about, it's like, this is a class issue, and yet trans people are being made out to be. In your book, you talk about bullies in the press and all of this yeah. kind of stuff, and it's the other way around. But that's obviously like an intentional tactic to further disenfranchise trans people. Well, yeah, people are coming out younger and younger, which is great. Um, and then people go like, oh yeah, Gen Z, Z or Z, whatever. <laughs> like, they don't have Gen a Z. Yeah, they, they don't have a problem with this. You know, actually, it's great that people are coming out younger, but it also means that like uh, AKT, the charity that provides 
um, support young homeless LGBTQ plus people has seen mm. like a, it was like 10 years ago, 5% of their user base was trans and now it's 35%. And, and Albert most, Kennedy trust. Yeah, yeah. 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 The numbers of trans young people experiencing homelessness are going up because they're coming out younger, but then that doesn't mean their family are any more accepting or their community is any more accepting. Mm. The more younger you are made homeless, the more the homelessness is going to follow you your whole life. Like mm. it entrenches itself. It's one of those systemic social issues. Yeah. So again, that's a class issue, right? Like that's Absolutely. about underfunding services. And, yeah. and that's something we never see talked about in the media. I think we see a lot about pronouns and diversity inclusion in already quite bougie workspaces but we yeah. don't really um see much the media's kind of failed us in that respect well like you said pronouns and all this stuff that happens in offices it helps but it doesn't ensure the safety of trans people no. and one of the most shocking statistics i learned from your book is that is it 50 percent of trans people have been at suicide risk or have felt suicidal yeah pretty much around yeah. that usually i mean i'm a really privileged trans person i felt suicidal so yeah you know it's like i'm always one for not flinging suicide statistics around too much like you know I would never be like doing it kind of casually but one because I don't want to yeah. desensitize people to it yeah understand that um, yeah and two you should be respecting trans people whether or not the, the suicidal ideation rates are so high mm. but I do think it's I do think it's important sometimes to reflect on like yeah, the people who have not fulfilled their potential. It's really heartbreaking mm. because of their class position, because of, you know, an NHS system that's just now getting worse and worse and spiraling out of control in, in its inability to help trans people. And yeah, and also because of mental health services not being funded. And that's something mm. that affects loads of trans people, one of many groups, yeah. more likely to experience like complex mental health issues. It's it's really frustrating that like when we're focusing on like this kind of culture war stuff yep. as a society. I mm -hmm. mean, not like us literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're focusing on, I don't know, whether trans women are too feminine or whether, yeah, whether you should be, whether there should be gender neutral toilets in yeah. public facilities. Well, it always comes back to the toilets for, yeah. for, for some reason. What do you think's behind that? Yeah, and you know what? It's just like, that's so... It's just so funny, isn't it? I mean, that's what happens, less so on uh, Instagram, but when I had Twitter, I don't have any more, thank God. Oh, wow. Uh, Amazing yeah, good for you. I, I, yeah. know, I, I set fire to my Twitter. <laughs> um, on there is where I think a lot of the like really sort of like radicalized people, you know, who really just were just like, get out of our toilets, stuff like that. I'd get that daily when I was on there for like five years. And it was just was so removed from my actual experience, right? Like, it's like a yeah. theoretical debate in their heads. It's like, there is no way I'm going into a men's toilet. Like, mm -hmm. I just don't. Like that's, It's not even one of the more complex sides of this for and me. And you don't it's think that even like, translates to real life. So, no. so that's not even actually something that you feel. Yeah. No, I mean, the thing is, it's like, I mean, I'm talking about myself on a personal, like, of course. if they, if they yeah. passed a law tomorrow saying it's a crime for me to use a women's toilet, I still would. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to walk into a men's toilet. Yes. It's just ludicrous. Uh -huh. So for me, like, that's a classic example. It's mm. so detached from what my day-to-day -day life experiences and what my concerns mm -hmm. are my friend's concerns are when am I getting my health care yeah well how long's the waiting list can I get proper housing are people treating me well at work not what toilet am I using mm -hmm. there's a lot happening these days but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time the 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So when it comes to all of the issues that you're talking about, these are very real issues that have actually very little to do with whether trans women are valid or have the right pronouns and all of this kind of stuff that you talk about we're discussing on social media. What would you say is the way forward to actually impact trans people's access to healthcare and all of this kind of stuff? I think we need to start thinking about working together in terms of political coalitions. So like an example of this would be instead of the hyper-focus on yeah, what makes trans women different and how to like afford a social courtesy, which like obviously is good, but yeah, like only goes so far. It's like, for example, what we're seeing across like the world really with the resurgence of like fascists, right wing, Christian right in the US. It's like an attack on like basic principles that affect like lots of us, like bodily autonomy, like Mm. affects anyone who is a woman, full stop. For trans women, it affects our ability to access transition-related care and sexual health and lots of other things. For cisgender women and then for any trans person with a uterus as well, like obviously it affects things like access to contraception, abortion. We're seeing that in the US. Like these things are always attacked. This is why like anti-trans feminism is so frustrating. Do you not realize like any government around the world that's restricting access to trans healthcare is also restricting access to abortion like they go hand in hand because it's a patriarchal idea that you don't let people do what they want with their own bodies yeah and that's necessary for like their mental well-being and to like escape whatever patriarchal narrative has been like impressed on their body whether that's like you must be a mother if you get pregnant or you must be a man if you're born with like xy chromosomes and a penis these ideas about bodily autonomy are much richer ideas to think about the kind of coalitions that we would need to build to improve things for all women and all marginalized genders and we have seen like examples of where they work right so the the referendum in in Ireland about access to abortion in 2018 you know that was quite a trans inclusive campaign obviously it focused on women because women are the vast majority of people who can get pregnant but trans people were kind of trans masculine people in particular were included and it, and it did Within the policy? Well, yeah, and within the campaigning and trans masculine speakers. This is why in Britain it's so frustrating when people are like, oh, this is, you know, we can't say woman anymore. We can't say mother anymore. Like, You know, in Ireland, they actually managed to have a huge broad campaign because it was a public vote. Like every member of the population got to vote on women's right to have an abortion, which is, you know, kind of not really that great, but it's a function of the way that the Irish constitution works. But like getting to that point where they could have that referendum took years of campaigning at grassroots level. And they were just, you know, they were very clear. It's like, what's well, about bodily autonomy? It's the same thing as for trans people. Mm. It's like what we're saying is the state and, you know, men and the state and patriarchy shouldn't have like this dominion over your body. So I would like to see like, I guess, yeah, more kind of broad coalitions like that. Cause trans people, trans healthcare is niche. We're never going to be able to change it without like more people And obviously, the only way you can kind of get people to care about something that doesn't affect them is to kind of like, that's how human beings work, is to to form like broader coalitions of politics around things. So it's like, I support 
your right to choose, even though I don't have a uterus and it's never going to, like, that particular thing is never going to affect me because I also have a right to choose about what I do with my body in this context. When you were talking about how that campaign was successful with its inclusive language, how was it so successful? And what would you say to people who say, oh, we can't say woman anymore? And it's kind of like people say they have to tiptoe around language and all this kind of stuff. How did this island campaign get it right? From the beginning, they acknowledged the existence whilst they acknowledged that abortion is majoritively a women's issue, which is fine to acknowledge. There are, you know, people who are not women who were affected by the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution and therefore were right to be involved in the movement. From the beginning yeah. as well. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And then even for, you know, even discussing trans women, even though trans women weren't affected by that particular amendment, that obviously there's a connected struggle there because it's about women's autonomy in society and trans women are also find that curbed too by violence, harassment. So the, to see that language, that inclusivity right from the beginning in, so, in something that had to be so broad and include so many women in order to be effective because it required like, you know, a majority of the population to vote um, to repeal that law. To me, it's great because it really disproves this myth that if you start being inclusive towards trans people, somehow the language we have to talk about women's oppression or, or women's experiences is going to disappear and women can't get anything done. I've heard that anti-trans feminists in the UK say that. They're like, if we can't, you know, if we if we can't even define what a woman is, then how can we campaign on women's rights? And it's like, well, having a f- sort of fluid definition of woman and also understanding that not things that we think of as women's experiences will affect some people that aren't women doesn't actually mean you can't get stuff no, done. and doesn't put anyone at a disadvantage at all. No. Would you say then that the way to be trans-inclusive is to acknowledge the difference in our experiences and still still celebrate the fact that trans women need to be included in all of these spaces? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's kind of one of those myths that does the rounds is that like sometimes people who are really new to the conversation will say something like, yeah, I mean, like I support trans women, but they are different. And it's like, yeah, of course, being assigned a different gender and then having to like go through the process of like finding out about yourself mm. where you realize, that, oh, there's something really off here. Obviously, that's a really different experience. It's not about like, we have to be exactly the same. Also, like cisgender women are not all the same. I mean, like to be like a, to be a woman in Saudi Arabia is not the same as being Absolutely. a woman in like London, yeah. you know. And this is why I think black feminists have always been like, well, actually, this kind of construction of white womanhood does not resonate. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's never ex- like, it's always excluded black women. Yeah. And you just made the most basic point, but actually, which is just so important, no woman has the same fucking experience <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. And then the trouble is, is what I'm interested in about like when we're talking about the services, is why is, and that's the, what's lost a lot with trans women sometimes about like the idea of the trans woman in the women's refuge. It's what's lost is why is she there? What the kind of transphobic conversation will focus on a lot is like the potential anxieties that some women, cisgender women might experience, which is fine. Like I can understand maybe why some would, particularly in cases of acute trauma or whatever, but like actually we should be looking to see how those services kind of help to resolve that by having enough resources to kind of manage those really rare things when they exist, rather than this like blanket idea of exclusion of trans women. And what's lost is like, why is the trans woman there? And it's usually yeah. because she's experienced Horrific. in this context the same thing that like the cisgender women are there for. Like. Well, you said in your book that the media focuses on how trans people pose a threat to uh, cisgender women, but actually your, your book is trying to reflect on the issues affecting trans people yeah. as opposed to how trans people are supposedly affecting the public. 
Yeah, So it's like flipping that switch. Like you said about the the trans women who come to these refugee centres or women's crisis, whatever, are there and... It's, it's almost like people want to talk more about the impact that the trans woman is having on the room, the, the cisgender women in the room, as opposed to why she might be there and what help does she need. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like trans women don't often get access sometimes to the same levels of empathy, especially in the media. For some of our experiences, not just of transphobia, but of misogyny, because mm. we experience misogyny too. I mean, like even the fact that like, yeah, abusive boyfriends of trans women, for example, there are real patterns of like abuse, like the fact that like, your family are less likely to be talking to you. The fact that you're like more precarious in your employment, the fact that you feel like you're lucky to have anyone at all because you're a trans woman and therefore like, you know, something that I think I've felt before in relationships is when, I, when I've been dating someone, it's not necessarily going well. There's that like panic, like, well, who else will have me? I'm a trans woman. You know, these things go really, really deep in a culture where we're told that we're disgusting and unlovable and all that stuff. And we do all grow up with that. You know, that can create the conditions where someone can exploit that in an abusive way. We get treated like sometimes like scary, creepy men and like a subclass of women at wow. the same time. Um, and that and that can be really, really difficult to navigate. And the other thing I just wanted to say, well, I think about this, we've talked a lot about trans women, but like, as we're talking about services too, one thing I really wanted to do in the book and I hope I've done is also talk about trans men in this context because most of the evidence shows that trans men are also highly likely to experience a lot of the, and, and non-binary people, of course, a lot of these issues, particularly um, domestic sexual violence, gender-based violence. And trans men have a different kind of um, struggle where they're, if they try and, you know, sometimes there can, there can be a fear about talking about that because the experiences are very connected to misogyny. But it's almost like if they start talking about it publicly that they're, people will basically like try and use it as a kind of way to say that they're not men. Wow. A lot of the anti-trans arguments are so focused on trans women that they don't even take into consideration the existence of trans men. Yeah, you've you've spoke a lot just over there, which is amazing, the stuff you said about um, domestic abuse as well and how it affects trans women differently to cis women. Um, you spoke a lot about also the binary. And could you talk about what the binary is? Yeah. Yeah, the gender binary. Yeah, yeah, I can do. Yeah, so the gender binary works by basically saying that like there are two categories that exist, male and female, and that they're rooted in our biology and that they're mutually exclusive and you can never move from one to the other. That's like the first principle of the gender binary. The second is that anyone born into like the male class or the female class should be masculine and like the male class should be masculine and the female class should be feminine. That includes like sleeping with only the opposite gender, right? Like heterosexuality. And then three is like male and masculine are better than female and feminine. Um, and that's kind of the core of what the gender binary is. And um, and obviously, yeah, it shapes everything about uh, the whole gamut of human discourse, really. How can <laughs> most of humanity, well, all of humanity fit in two preordained boxes? I and mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, it's just... It's actually quite a, like a deranged idea. Yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and yet it persists and it shapes the way that we talk about people. It shapes our language and everything like that. Um, and it hasn't always existed. It doesn't exist in every culture. It hasn't existed in every point of human history. There have been cases, you know, times and places and cultures where there has been some kind of understanding that people may cross the binary or people may exist outside it or that there isn't just two genders, for example. Um, And yeah, what I kind of like look at in the book is like there have been in every recorded human culture, people who have lived like cross-gender lives that have like existed outside of whatever uh, part of the binary that they were born into. 
And the thing is, because those three things are linked, you can't really, un- I don't believe you can undo the hierarchy where it's like, to, it's better to be male and a man and masculine than it is to be female, a woman, feminine. You can't really undo that hierarchy without starting to challenge the idea that these things are like always separate, can't be crossed. Once okay. you're born into one, you can't do the other. Mm. And I think it's a little bit why tra- trans women um, get some the brunt of like the most uh, visceral transphobia, particularly from like right-wing men, is because uh, if you believe that being like male and masculine is better than being female and feminine, like trans women are kind of a real affront to that because we ha- we were technically born into the like category of like male. We're kind of a threat to that hierarchy because we've said like <laughs> being a man is not better for me. Yeah. It's not really a choice, but it's perceived as we've chosen to be women in a society where we're supposed to uphold masculinity. Okay, so some of the questions from my listeners. Uh, Here's the first one. How should I be there for a friend who's transitioning? I think the easiest thing to start off with is to ask your friend, like, what do you need from me? Um, And not to try and second guess it. Transitioning is a terrifying thing when you're moving through public space, when you feel gauche and awkward. I don't know if the friend in this case would be maybe experiencing harassment, but it's highly likely that they might have done, even if it's only like a handful of times, but that can be enough to terrify you for like years afterwards is about um, literally physically being there with them, you know, like in a social situation. I did really appreciate when I transitioned the friends who were there for me. I mean, like even, yeah, to the point of like being there with me in like the restroom or whatever. Those acts of like support. Yeah, like a lot of trans women have really positive experiences of like cisgender female friends who um, were very welcoming and helpful to us early in transition where we were very nervous in that kind of zone. Um, and those experiences do mean a lot, I think, early on. But it is, yeah, it's about asking the yeah. person okay. and saying, what is it you need from me as a friend? Or is there anything I can do to make this like less anxious for you? That's definitely it. Okay, great. Uh, another question. Are expressions like pussy power transphobic? That's an interesting one, right? Like, there's a bit of a debate on this. I don't mind it because I see that as, like, it's kind of this idea, like, this archetype of the feminine and female power and stuff like that. And, like, we're, we live in a phallocentric culture where, like, penises mean power and male and stuff like that. Uh, and pussy power is this kind of, like, feminine archetype. I can't speak for trans women, but I really wouldn't care about that. I would see that, provided I knew that it wasn't like being used intentionally to be like, this is a space for people who were born with vaginas only. But if it's just like, this is like what we're using to kind of celebrate like the feminine and female power and, you know, and we're using that imagery, but we're trans inclusive, then sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of trans women do like regardless of whether they've had surgery would call their genitals pussy anyway so like yes yes <laughs> you no, know, like, that, that's what i thought yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure like you said it's metaphorical and it can mean anything yeah yeah okay this is an interesting one is it okay not to be attracted to trans women is it the same as a sexual preference or is this just transphobia yeah this is an interesting one uh you can't force yourself to be attracted to anyone let's be realistic you're also allowed to have sexual boundaries for any reason personally it depends because it's like, what's that about? Like, because trans women look and sound and present in lots of different ways. Some have vaginas, some don't. You know, like there there is a sort of spectrum there. So you are kind of like collapsing quite a diverse spectrum of womanhood into like, oh, this one thing about their transness. To me, it's not the ultimate expression of transphobia because there are plenty of people who do date and have sex with trans people who are transphobic. Of course. Um, yeah. So like, 
yeah, you're entitled to say on a one-to-one basis, so I'd I'd rather not date you to a person or, you know, no thanks. But like, if you're going around kind of listing one very diverse group and basically being like, oh, I'm just not attracted to this entire group, and you feel the need to kind of say that, I, I mean, one, it's just like socially rude. Two, it's kind of just a bit derogatory about that group, like regardless of who they are. Also, like, especially on like dating profiles and stuff like that, it can often be like an imposition of like power dynamic, isn't it? Is like men who are like, oh, I don't want no, no femmes. Yeah, no yeah, femmes. Yeah. Like, no, yeah, no, no fat women or like. But also, I feel like a lot of people who maybe say I would never date a trans person have never met a trans person. Also, because yeah. it's this, it's this caricature idea that they have in their heads from what they've consumed through the media or the horrible stereotypes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a thorny issue that one, isn't it? I just think blanket statements on either side aren't good. It's not like I wouldn't make blanket statement. It's transphobic to not want to date trans people. I think there's a lot going on there and, and I don't think that any of us can pretend our sexual desires aren't formulated by the culture we live in and the messages Absolutely. we get about people. Absolutely, our desire. Yeah, and of course it's great to interrogate that sometimes. Reality is you don't like sit in your room being like, right, now I'm going to interrogate Unpack. my sexual <laughs> yes. desire. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. not how sexuality yeah. works. You know, it tends to be, you know, what's like fun about sexuality is it can like be surprising and impulsive mm-hmm. and you can go down roads you never... Ex- yeah, and you, you can like suddenly meet someone that can completely change... Um, your views. Another question. What would you say to someone who uses female safety as a reason to not support trans issues? Yeah, well, I mean, what, the, first thing I'd say, well, the first thing I'd say to them is like, look at who female safety is threatened by. And it yeah. tends to be threatened by cisgender men, mm. um, not trans people. The second thing is, is that trans people have basically existed as I say, throughout people we call trans throughout human history, but like trans people have been um, moving through public space, using facilities, using services in line with their gender for like the best part of a century now. Uh, and there isn't really like a, there hasn't really been an observable increase in risk from trans people towards cisgender women's safety. Also like the vast majority of like female safety, the most dangerous person to you as a woman is a man that you already know. Women's like safety is most compromised by men known to us, men are immediate intimate social sphere it's not strangers yeah it's it's horrible to think about but the most one of the most dangerous things you can do as a woman is like is yeah participate in heterosexuality yes is to date a man yeah Yeah, i know and it's something that we you know like you know this is an excellent point well love that we're ending on the note of the most dangerous thing a woman can do is date a man (laughs) yeah but it is it is it's not the men lurking in the alleyways that's like on a percentage scale of sexual violence and all of this horrific stuff that happens to women, gender-based violence, is by men we already know that are in our lives. Sometimes we go to bed with them. Yeah, well, that's what, I mean, weirdly just goes back to the radical feminist thing. Some radical feminist ideas were actually right, though. Like, their idea that the most dangerous thing for women were heterosexuality, the nuclear family, you know, all these, like, that, that, I mean, that's tea, as they say. (laughs) Like, it's kind of true. Like, obviously, but it's also, like, one of the biggest sites of danger. But because it's, like, treated by patriarchy as like the normal non-deviant safe thing to do yeah we tend to focus on on these kind of like hypothetical scapegoats yeah or the rare cases of stranger danger etc gender isn't just about like clothes and makeup and like it's really trivialized yeah it's about power yeah yeah well amazing thank you so much (laughs) i've enjoyed this conversation so much thank you for having me 
Wow, that was such an enlightening conversation that I just had with Sean. Um, a lot of the topics that we touched on today involving, you know, what to say to your parents or what to say to a feminist friend who maybe doesn't support trans people or ha is confused about all of the stuff that we discussed. Uh, Sean answers this not only in the podcast that we just did together, but in her book incredibly fluently. After my conversation with Sean today, I think I'm going to have a look into uh, trans healthcare and watch some of the documentaries that she recommended. I think she recommended one by Charlie Craggs, which has been heavily recommended to me also by my peers and my friends. Um, I'm going to check that out for sure. There's a lot of things that I'm going to be left thinking about when it comes to my conversations as well. When I am talking about desirability politics and when I am talking about self-esteem, I am going to keep this perspective in mind when I have these conversations on social media in the future. And a massive thank you to the fucking incredible Black Honey who composed the original theme music for my podcast. You can find them on Instagram at BlackHoneyUK and check out their latest album called Written and Directed. To keep yourself updated with all the latest episodes as they drop, you can follow exactly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please take the time to rate us wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a review. It really does help people to find us and make sure that the people who need to hear these conversations do. This is a podcast from something else. My producer is Millie Charles. My assistant producer is Ella McLeod. Executive producer is Carly Mail. Production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And I want to give a special thanks to our engineers, Jay Beal, Josh Gibbs, and mixing engineer, Gully Lawrence Tickle. An additional production from Chris Skinner and Teddy Riley. <laughs> <laughs>